Welcome to a special episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Matt Herper. We're coming to you from Chicago, where we're just wrapping up coverage from the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual meeting. So the ASCO meeting is all about cancer drug research. Matt and I have spent the past four days sitting in on data presentations, peering at scientific posters, talking to cancer docs, and interviewing biotech and pharma executives. We've even managed to write a bunch of stories. Adam and I are going to offer our hot takes from ASCO on this week's regular Read Out Loud episode. For this special podcast, we're bringing you three interviews from the halls of the ASCO meeting. First up, we chat with Dr. Parth Shaw. He's a behavioral scientist and pharmacist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. And we're going to talk about the low rate of HPV vaccination in the U.S., and what can be done to reverse the problem. Then we talked to Alice Shaw from Mass General Hospital, who has led the way in developing targeted lung cancer drugs, including a medicine that was presented here at ASCO and had some interesting results. And lastly, Dr. Mark A. Lewis, a GI cancer doctor from Salt Lake City, stopped by our makeshift studio to talk about patient engagement. And we're also gonna play a little ASCO 2019 bingo. HPV is the most common form of sexually transmitted disease. Most people who contract HPV through sexual contact will get rid of it on their own. But those who don't are at a higher risk for cancer. Cervical cancer is the most common HPV-associated cancer among women. For men, it's cancer of the throat and neck. There is a vaccine to protect against HPV infection, which when used properly, prevents these types of HPV-associated cancers from occurring. But despite great efforts, HPV vaccination rates in the United States remain low, and as a result, about 33,000 Americans are diagnosed with HPV-related cancer each year. The organizers of the ASCO meeting this year brought together researchers and scientists to talk about HPV vaccination issues. The title of the session posed an important question, HPV vaccination, why is it so difficult to implement a vaccine that prevents cancer? Joining the podcast to discuss this issue with me is Dr. Parth Shah. He is a behavioral scientist and pharmacist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. Parth studies HPV vaccination as a public policy issue, and he gave a talk at this year's ASCO meeting. Parth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Parth, let's step back first and put some numbers to the HPV vaccination story. We hear that HPV vaccination rates are low, but how low are they and how far from the goal are we? So nationally, we see vaccination rates around 49%. That's the latest statistic that is provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. The national goal right now is 80%. And that goal was set by the 2020 Healthy People, um, which is a particular uh, set of policies that are um, proposed by the Department of Health and Human Services. What are the reasons parents don't vaccinate their kids? It's a really important question, and it's been over a decade of research trying to understand what are the reasons why parents are refusing to get this vaccine or delaying vaccination. They have changed over time, but the predominant ones that come up are safety and side effect concerns, uh, which isn't uh, unique to HP vaccine. I think it's a concern among all, for parents for all different types of vaccines. The other uh, predominant reason that comes up is uh, lack of knowledge. 
parents aren't necessarily aware of what the vaccine does, what it's preventing, uh, and they don't get a lot of information about that. Another big cons uh, big reason why parents are getting vaccinated is that providers aren't recommending it. Uh, they're just not communicating the importance of the vaccine. They're not bringing it up when uh, children come in for healthcare visits. And then some minor concerns that come up, uh, even though there's a perseveration about the fact that the vaccine prevents a sexually transmitted infection, Parents are a little concerned about, well, why should we be getting a vaccine for children when they're not sexually active? And so although that tends to come up a lot in the media, that's actually a more minor concern based off what the uh, data are showing us. So, Parth, here at ASCO, you spoke about the way in which healthcare providers, you know, doctors and pharmacists can work to get more people vaccinated against HPV. Is this the front for this kind of effort? Within uh, the United States, the way that our healthcare system is set up is that kids get vaccinated when they go see a doctor. And so it seems very reasonable then that our efforts uh, and focus for improving strategies for vaccination are primarily focused within um, those primary care providers, pediatricians, family medicine doc uh, doctors, uh, even gynecologists, if uh, young adolescent girls are seeing them. Are there data on the importance or influence that a recommendation from a doctor or a healthcare provider can have on HPV? Yeah, definitely. So uh, among the various strategies that have been developed, there are a variety of effective ways of improving immunization rates. Um, some are targeted towards the system level, but one of the more potent ways of improving immunization rates is an effective recommendation from a provider, and the data is just very consistent about that. We almost get a two-fold increase in vaccination rates when providers make a strong recommendation to get HPV vaccine. One of the more interesting points you made, I think, in your ASCO presentation focused on how the right communication approach, you know, that's the way that doctors talk to patients or the parents of children can influence the decision to vaccinate. Can you explain that? So uh, within sort of the communication realm research, we tend to gravitate or we tend to initially focus on shared decision making, right? We want to provide information in a way that's cohesive and understandable for parents to make health decisions for their children. But what we also tend to find that when we tend to adopt certain shared communication strategies, we open ourselves to a lot of ambiguity and the onus of the decision making put on the parents when the parents are actually seeking information advice from the physician or from the other, uh, other types of providers who are providing these vaccines. And what we tend to find that is when uh, providers take a particular approach, which within these communication strategies we call presumptive methods, they tend to work a lot better than any other method. And what is meant by a presumptive method is you're simply using statements or phrases that presumes parents are ready to vaccinate their children. In a psychological realm, what this acts as is like a communication default. It's signaling to the parents that this is a part of standard routine care, and it's something that I do for all my patients. So give me an example of effective communication. Sure. So one of the one of the techniques that uh, I've had the privilege of helping to develop with some researchers over at the University of North Carolina is called the announcement approach. And so what we start off is with an announcement statement, and it has three important components to it. First, you make note of the child's age. 
Then you talk about that there's several vaccines that the child is due at this age, and you focus on the specific diseases that the vaccine's preventing. And the important part is when you're listing the disease, you talk about HPV cancers in the middle of the list. And then finally, at the end of that statement, you say that we're going to give the vaccine today. So the statement would sound something like, so Sophia is 12, and at, that, at this age, we provide vaccines that prevent against meningitis, HPV cancers, and the whooping cough. We'll be giving these vaccines at the end of the visit today. So there's no ambiguity. It's affirmative. So when that type of statement is made, you find there's acceptance? Yeah, absolutely. So already there's going to be parents that are on board and going to just go along with that. But we even find that just using a statement like that, a simple statement that just says we give these vaccines and we're going to give it at the end of the visit, we find that even among vaccine-hesitant parents, that it works pretty well among them too. Mm-hmm. Now, say, for instance, a parent hesitates still, right? They still have some questions. Well, then the communication technique then shifts gears and actually starts to hone in on the specific concern that the parent has. And so what we try to train providers to do is hone in on the specific concern by asking them, what's the main concern that you have? Make sure that uh, the parent feels like you're listening to them. You know, you're, you're giving affirmations and acknowledgments of this particular concern, saying like, oh, I understand you probably have questions about safety and side effects. Then we've developed some brief messages that specifically hones in on that concern that have been shown to work pretty well in research. And the idea behind the brief messages is to be memorable, right? When patients and their parents are coming in, they're getting a lot of information in that visit. And the idea with these brief messages is honing in on that specific concern and providing a quick, medically accurate answer to it. I'm here with Dr. Alice Shaw, the Paula O'Keefe Endowed Chair in Thoracic Oncology at Mass General, who's led the way in developing targeted lung cancer drugs. So Dr. Shaw, tell us your story. How did you become involved in treating lung cancer patients, and when did you start working with these targeted therapies? I started in the field about 18 years ago, actually. I was in the clinic initially, but then working in the lab and focusing actually on one of the best-known oncogenes in lung cancer, which was KRAS at that time and really hoping that we would be able to translate some of the basic discoveries about oncogenes and oncogenic signaling into the clinic. During that exact time was when a very pivotal discovery was made in the field of lung cancer, which was the discovery of activating EGFR mutations. And this really, I think, was the pivotal study for the field in that it, for the first time, identified a molecular target in a solid tumor for which there was actually an effective targeted therapy. And as I was in the lab and studying another oncogene, KRAS, and I saw this really key discovery, really motivated me to continue studying lung cancer and to actually move from basic to more clinical research in order to try and better understand the biology of lung cancer and be in a position to translate discoveries into the clinic. And so I transitioned from the lab to a more translational or clinical investigator position in 2007. 
And that was another really important year for the field because that was the year that Dr. Hiramano's group from Japan discovered now a second molecular target in lung cancer, and that was with the gene called ALK or anaplastic lymphoma kinase. So tell me about the drug to target that gene. What was really amazing about this story is that when this oncogene was discovered as a potential target in lung cancer, there just happened to already be a targeted therapy in the clinic in phase one testing. And this was the drug crizotinib, um, which is our first generation ALK-ROS-MET inhibitor. What's it like to offer that drug to patients? So I think one of the defining characteristics of these oncogene-driven cancers, such as EGFR mutant lung cancer or ALK-driven lung cancer, is that they respond exquisitely to targeted therapies. And by that, I mean they respond quickly and they respond dramatically. So patients who are having symptoms related to their lung cancer will notice an improvement in symptoms, usually within a few days. And it was incredible to see the very first ALK-positive patient treated with crizotinib in December 2007. I remember exactly when this happened. And to see that this patient, even after a single dose, noted an improvement in his symptoms. And this was a very sick patient, so after he continued regular dosing, it was very clear within a week or two that this patient was having a dramatic response. And even from that very first patient, all of us were very hopeful that ALK was indeed going to be a targetable oncogene and crizotinib was going to be an effective targeted therapy for this patient population. So we have better ALK inhibitors now. And you actually ran a randomized trial that people thought would be impossible comparing two of those ALK inhibitors. Tell me about that study. Crizotinib as a first-generation ALK inhibitor was incredibly effective. But what we started to see even within the first year or two of testing the drug in ALK patients is that patients do develop resistance to the drug. And to crizotinib, we were seeing resistance develop within about a year of treating them. So that was very worrisome to us. So electinib was a uh, second-generation ALK inhibitor, uh, first developed in, in Japan, actually. And it was developed to be very potent and also to inhibit the most common resistance mutations in crizotinib patients, uh, so the gatekeeper mutation, for example. And electinib was looking very promising in single-arm studies of patients who had failed crizotinib. So we were seeing that electinib, a more potent drug, could in fact salvage or rescue patients who were failing a first-generation drug. And we also were seeing really really impressive activity in the brain, meaning that we could see that this drug could induce responses in brain metastases. And so this gave us a lot of hope that perhaps we should be using this drug that works so well in patients who've already failed crizotinib, we should use that first line. And that actually really provided the basis for developing this large global phase three study, examining electinib, a more powerful ALK inhibitor, head-to-head against the standard of care at the time, which was crizotinib, a less potent ALK inhibitor. And that was a really pivotal study for us because it really established more potent brain-penetrable ALK inhibitors like electinib as our standard first-line therapy because it was incredibly more effective than crizotinib in treating the disease, controlling the disease, and even potentially preventing the development of brain metastases. So then there is another gene for which some of these drugs work. How did the Ross-1 story unfold? And tell us about Turning Point Therapeutics drug, which was presented at ASCO. 
So ROS1 is an oncogene like ALK, and it can be activated in a small subset of patients by chromosomal rearrangement. Uh, we see this in about 1% to 2% of lung cancer patients, so it's relatively rare. ROS1 is very interesting because it's similar to ALK. Many ALK inhibitors actually do inhibit ROS1 as well. And again, we had studied this in the lab first to show that ALK inhibitors such as crizotinib actually are active against ROS1. And this provided the basis for us to actually test crizotinib as the first ROS1 inhibitor in patients who have specifically ROS1 rearranged lung cancer. We showed a very high response rate, over 70%, and very, very durable responses in this defined molecular subset of patients. Now, this is transforming for patients. The drug actually received full FDA approval for ROS1 positive lung cancer. In addition, it already had approval for ALK positive lung cancer. And so Pretty much around the world, ROS1-positive patients will receive crizotinib as a standard first-line therapy. But we also started to see early on that resistance, again, emerges uh, to crizotinib in our ROS1-positive population. And again, lots of preclinical and clinical studies to try and understand resistance in ROS1-positive patients to identify the most prevalent resistance mechanisms so that we could try and now develop targeted therapy strategies for resistance. And in fact, I think at this year's ASCO, we finally saw some indication of success here. We have a new drug made by TP Therapeutics called Repotrectinib, and this drug was rationally designed to overcome these highly refractory, what we call solvent front mutations in ROS1, as well as TRAC and ALK, other tyrosine kinases. Probably about 40% or so of patients, when they fail crizotinib, have this type of solvent front mutation. So it was very important need for patients. So this drug is uh, currently in phase one testing. We heard preliminary results from the phase one trial of repotrectinib, and the results so far are very encouraging. ROS1 positive patients who have never received targeted therapy, such as crizotinib, the drug is really active, response rate exceeding 80%. But where this drug stands out, is that in patients who had failed crizotinib already, and for this population of patients, repotrectinib induced a response rate of about 55%. So slightly lower than the treatment-naive setting, but still a very impressive response rate, especially for patients who are resistant to crizotinib. So we need a little more data. We need larger numbers. We need longer follow-up. But I think it's very exciting for crizotinib-resistant patients that there may be an option um, after crizotinib. And there will be a larger study starting of that medicine? There will be a larger phase two study that will focus specifically on ROS one, uh, patients who are treatment naive, but also importantly, those patients who have already been on crizotinib. So here's a problem. In cases where there are multiple drugs against these mutations, do you save the new drug for when tumors become resistant to the old one, or do you use the stronger one first? I think all the data we have so far really supports the idea that you should use your best drug first. And oftentimes the best drug is a drug that's more potent and the drug that is known to overcome common resistance mutations. We've seen this for ALK with electinib compared to crizotinib. We've also seen this in EGFR mutant lung cancer with the third generation inhibitor osimertinib compared to first generation inhibitors. And I would say it's likely to hold up in ROS1 as well. This also seems to me to be a big problem. The number of people who get each of these medicines gets smaller and smaller as we're treating these resistance mutations. Are we set up in the right way to make personalized cancer care happen? I think it's fair to say, based on the past decade, that we're already doing personalized cancer 
care quite well, especially in thoracic oncology for lung cancer patients, um, where we see a lot of these oncogenes and for which we have very specific targeted therapies. But you do bring up a good point that within each of the molecular subsets, uh, there is a need for continued personalization of cancer care as patients develop resistance and need to move from one therapy to the next. So I am seeing this happen now that we are following patients who are on a first-generation inhibitor for whatever type of oncogene-driven lung cancer. And when they become resistant, I do see more and more oncologists using genomic profiling of blood or tumors to help tailor the next selection of therapy. And that's really our goal because we know that tailoring your therapy based on the underlying mechanism of resistance will ultimately give us the best outcomes. Adam and I are here with Mark Lewis from Intermountain Healthcare, where he's director of gastrointestinal oncology. He's a star of Twitter, and we are happy to have him here. Thanks for being here, Mark. Thank you so much for having me and indulging me after all my social media antics at this meeting. Oh, we're indulging you because of your social media <laughs> antics, Mark. So uh, we wanted to talk about uh, some funny stuff, including bingo and bingo about cancer. But first, I wanted to talk about something more serious, which you're not only a doctor. Mm -hmm. You've also been a patient. Yeah. You've, you've had pancreatic cancer yourself. Yep, Tell right. us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny. I can't look back on my experience as an oncologist and not also see it through the prism of being a patient because I self-diagnosed a tumor syndrome my very first week of my oncology fellowship at Mayo Clinic. And I was written off as a hypochondriac. I stuck to my guns. I was pretty sure that my family had this genetic flaw. And sure enough, we do. Uh, I can't go back in time and help my father, who passed when I was young. That's the reason I went into oncology. So I've sort of worked backwards. I knew I wanted to go into oncology because of this filial rage I felt towards cancer. And then intellectually, I put the pieces together and realized it was hereditary. So I've been quite vocal for a long time now, hopefully not too exhibitionist to the point that people are turned off, but about my experience as a patient almost as much as I am a physician. Now, the most extreme example and the reason I think I gained some Twitter notoriety is that two years ago when I had my Whipple operation on my pancreas, I somewhat remarkably convinced the social media team at Intermountain where I work to live tweet the entire operation. So it's literally an out-of-body experience for me. I can go back, and this was quite purposeful, and go through all the steps of my surgery. And I did that because I wanted to demystify the Whipple. The Whipple is one of the most fearsome surgeries in oncology. More people are terrified of that than maybe any other operation. That's kind of how the Twitter thing took off. And that's how I think patients started to view me, hopefully, as a fairly authentic voice is, you know, I've got this experience. I'm trying to take what happened to me and make it public. So part of my evangelism is, listen, cancer is increasingly a subset of rare diseases. You can even argue now that breast cancer, one of the most prevalent and certainly the most prominent social media, is just a cluster of a bunch of different subtypes. And it's great that they have unity, uh, but I think what you're gonna find as we go forward at these meetings is patients will increasingly identify by subtype. So before this meeting, you tweeted out this bingo card, and it's fantastic. It's got a whole bunch of things that we all see at these meetings. I think my favorite is women's health mansplained. <laughs> of course, yes. in mice has to be there. 
Um, and also, I can relate to someone walks into you while you were staring at their phone. I would say while you are both staring. <laughs> yeah, at your that's phones. exactly. It's an occupational hazard here to ask. Everyone's going to go home and claim workers' comp from all these <laughs> pedestrian collisions. The one I actually wanted to call your attention to, to just to dovetail off what we were talking about, is that if you notice, the very top center square is surrogate endpoints patients can't relate to. And I'll just say I made this because there are so many tropes at these conferences. For better or for worse, I filled that all 25 squares relatively quickly. I did not shout out bingo during plenary session. I was trying to be respectful to the speakers. But the surrogacy thing is real. And there's actually been, I think, really progressive discussion at this meeting that when you talk to patients, really what they care about is how long they're going to live and during that time, how well they're going to live. And everything else really is just a placeholder for that. Now, the problem is those things are actually not as easy to measure as we might think. There's a whole debate uh, after yesterday's plenary session about you know, whether you know, overall survival matters more than progression-free survival. To patients, it does. The other square on here that I'd point out is just to the right of center. It says toxicity was manageable with grade three, four adverse events greater than 10%. When I was in fellowship, it was drilled into me that there is no such thing as only grade two toxicity. At the time, I was at Mayo. It's a myeloma center. They use a lot of drugs that cause neuropathy. And I made the mistake once of presenting to a very esteemed sort of ominous grease and saying, oh, the patient only has grade two neuropathy. And I never made that mistake again because he stopped me in my tracks. He goes, you realize what that means. That means the patient is feeling something every day that is impairing their quality of life and possibly permanently. And I realized at this meeting, the focus is ideally on increasing survival, but arguably, almost as importantly, maybe as importantly, it should be about quality of life. So Mark, there are a lot more cancer drugs approved today on biomarkers. You know, we're talking about accelerated approvals here based on response rates. So how do you feel about this as a doctor and as a patient, and really as someone who strongly believes that, you know, survival and quality of life for patients is the most important thing? Yes. It's like that Johnny Cash song, We Have to Walk the Line. On the one hand, it's really exciting when there's a new agent coming out, and The thing that makes me the most nervous about meetings like ASCO is we tend to amplify data that is not yet fully mature. And in fact, the plenary session yesterday, I think, gave us two examples of that. There was the trial of uh, alaritumab added to um, therapy in sarcoma. Uh, You know, it, it received an accelerated approval based on phase two data. And I applaud ASCO because they took the biggest stage of the entire meeting, the entire year, and one fourth of it was devoted to a negative study. And the subsequent dissection of the steps that got that drug really out there too soon. I think it was really amazing to see that we spent over a billion dollars with a B on this drug that ultimately is of no benefit. Thankfully, there didn't seem to be a huge harm signal, so I don't think patients were necessarily put in danger other than the financial toxicity. But I thought that that was quite instructive. So Mark, is it fair to say that you're okay with drugs being approved early on surrogate endpoints, but you want to see the confirmatory studies done to ultimately show survival and, you know, so true patient benefit. So that's very fair because, you know, there is an access issue. If we wait until everything is entirely mature, patients are literally going to die in the meantime. On the other hand, patients and oncologists are at risk for what, you know, Alan Greenspan would have called irrational exuberance, you know, rushing into something before it's fully proven. And where exactly you draw that line or put that bar. I don't envy the FDA. I think that they are bombarded these days with new drugs and new concepts. 
but I do think we have to proceed with an ounce of caution. Do uh, you have any thoughts on the other plenary session, given that it was a drug for pancreatic cancer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was pleased by the progression-free survival uh, signal, but as I just got done saying, it's going to be difficult to prove benefit to patients and oncologists, but especially patients, if there's not an overall survival benefit. I mean, this is a maintenance therapy. It is expensive. And there, we have to think about you know, costs on multiple levels, uh, too. But I think the larger point was, I, I don't think it's a negative study. I think it does illustrate that we're taking a, a fearsome, you know, traditionally very, very poor outcome cancer. And we've actually found a subset through very careful testing uh, that, that may, may respond to a drug. I think we're going to find there's a subset in the polo trial of patients. We just had the right way of identifying them probably a subset of a subset that are the true responders and durably so. What I thought was very interesting at the plenary sessions, they did point out that germline BRCA, it's one of only a few uh, DNA uh, damage uh, repair pathway defects. And so there's other potential targets in there for, for PARP inhibition. Um, I think they were quite selective actually in the patients that they enrolled on the study. But the last thing I'll say is, and this is back to my experience, as of this year, it is now the recommendation of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that every single patient with pancreatic adenocarcinoma get BRCA testing. And I think what we're finding then is not just patients who have mutations that are actionable for them, but, and this is very close to my heart, we're surfacing people that actually have hereditary syndromes and didn't know it. So that does it for this special ASCO episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to our producer, Hyacinth Empanado, working overtime this week. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's special episode. Should we do more of these? Are you sick of hearing our voices? Send your comments to readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll be back in a couple days with the regular episode of The Read Out Loud. Read Out Loud.